Welcome to Writers Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. My name is Neil Wilson. I'm a co-founder of the Ottawa International Writers Festival and the Republic of Childhood, our programming for children and youth. And I'm hosting a series of six podcasts which explore education in the face of environmental crisis, which is the tagline of the book Teaching in the Anthropocene, a pan-Canadian collection of 43 short essays by leading educators and researchers edited by Alicia Farrell, Candy Jones, Michelle Lamb, with illustrations and copy editing by Grace Stone. It is published by Canadian scholars and was released on July 29th, 2022. As the editors write in the introduction, we feel compelled to ask if the climate crisis expands the ethical obligations of teachers to include ensuring livable lives for children yet to come. If not, what can it possibly mean to teach in a world that is prepared to go on without us? It is becoming increasingly apparent that technocratic frameworks and conventional teaching methods are insufficient in the face of climate change dilemmas that are complex, integrative, multi-perspectival, and effectively charged. Time is of the essence, and young people feel it. Fueled by concerns for their future and angered by the inaction of adults, students across the globe continue to walk out of school on Fridays to participate in climate strikes. Yet, in the field of education, we have yet to respond in any significant way to the danger the climate crisis poses to the young people we teach. In our previous podcast, I spoke with uh, Maria Van Vallis, a doctoral candidate at the Ontario Institute of Studies in Education, who urges us to frame climate change as a complex, interdisciplinary political issue and who researches learner agency, which involves a shift in the ownership of learning from the teacher to the student. Today, in our fourth podcast in the series, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Candy Jones, one of the editors of the anthology Teaching in the Anthropocene. Candy is currently an associate professor in the Faculty of Education and chair of the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy at Brandon University. Her research interests include rural education and capacity building, teacher professional development, particularly in rural contexts, mathematics education, and teacher identity. A career-long teacher and scholar in the field of rural education, Candy spent 20 years as secondary educator in three different rural Manitoba communities before moving to Brandon University in 2015. She is both passionate about the strength and beauty of rural spaces and a staunch advocate for those who live and work within them. Welcome to Writers Festival Radio, Candy Jones. So I, I loved your, your piece. Um, it's entitled Growing Rural Capacity for Responding to the Anthropocentric Exigencies of Our Time. And you, um, you point out that the current educational systems in Canada and elsewhere are consciously or unconsciously biased against the rural experience. Now, where does this bias come from and what are its implications for how we deal with the climate crisis? 
Well, thank you for the question. Um, I think a lot of the unconscious bias that um, that I talk about in uh, my work and in my teaching comes from sort of inherent binaries that exist in, in our thinking about um, rural versus urban, for example, or um, that might extend to progressive versus traditional or modern versus archaic or cultured versus non-cultured. Um, I think that uh, those kind of inherent binaries set rural and urban educations, uh, education up to be sort of haves and have nots in the system. And uh, because of, you know, funding inequities and whatnot, we tend to think of it that way. Uh, and those underlying assumptions and uh, stereotypes about rural places, uh, they kind of result in people viewing rural communities and spaces as less than. As, and their knowledge as being um, less important than um, the school-based knowledge that you might find in urban places, for example, or in universities, for that matter. And uh, despite the fact that rural communities are very, you know, beautiful and have much to offer, even our rural students often feel that somehow their education and experiences are less than those of their urban peers. Uh, Theobald and Wood talk about that quite a bit. Um, through their formative years, they're often programmed to kind of um, leave rural communities uh, in order to prosper. Um, parents and teachers sort of educate uh, people out of rural communities. And I think that um, that uh, several researchers have referred to that as uh, rural brain drain, where rural communities kind of systemically groom their best and brightest to leave rural communities. And there's quite a few people who have written about that car and Kafalis, um wrote a book about uh, rural brain drain called, called Hollowing Out the Middle. And that was in an American context. Um, or Michael Corbett, he also talks about that in Atlantic Canada, about the idea that the best and brightest in rural communities are basically educated out of them. Um, and so part of that problem becomes that we often don't acknowledge um, the positive aspects of rural education and rural ways of knowing or or indigenous ways of knowing for that matter either uh, in our school contexts and in everyday life really just to give you an example in local communities people people know when the water freezes up they know when the fish are biting they know when local roads become impassable or the impact of a late spring on the growing season what kinds of plants uh flourish in in particular climates and which ones don't um so some of those rural ways of knowing have tremendous value uh in the world but they are not the things that are taught in school um and so in some ways we're set up uh to disavow um rural ways of knowing or indigenous ways of knowing as um uh, in addition so i think that in some ways our educational system uh, whether it's conscious or unconscious, sort of biases us all against the rural experience and what value, uh, what knowledge has value. And what do we need to do to tap into these rural ways of knowing, which, you know, are also, you know, included in, in, in Indigenous, but even separately, some of the, the uh, settler ways of knowing are also very important, according to you and others, in terms of uh, how we're going to deal with this crisis. Yeah, I I think um, one of the things that I noticed probably before I, I really thought about different ways of knowing too much or about the positive aspects of things like rural knowledge was um, sort of um, 
this, when I first started teaching, I was worried that students would be able to be successful. I started teaching in Snow Lake, Manitoba, which is north of the 54th parallel. And uh, it was a small community, only about uh, 1,500 people, um, and mostly uh, impacted by the mining industry. Um, but it was uh, Canadian Shield, like rocks and lakes. It was the most beautiful place on earth, in my opinion. And um, I, I noticed that in as a teacher, as a young teacher, I really felt like I needed to prepare students for um, leaving the community to go to university, to um, to have knowledge about things that weren't necessarily things they were versed in in their current context. Mm -hmm. um, and the students themselves felt like um, they were worried about going away to school. They were worried about being successful outside of Snow Lake. And I think that was probably my first introduction to this sort of um, issue around um, local knowledge or rural knowledge versus um, school-based knowledge. That's probably where it began. Um, and then later in my career, I really got into a lot more um, place-based uh, pedagogy. So when um, later on in my career, I became a, a math coach and I worked with math teachers in a different rural school division. Uh, and um, a lot of the teachers and I were working on uh, local place-based math lessons for example that revolved around you know uh working in a chicken barn or um doing different kind of construction applications so they were really based in the local knowledge of students and i think as i began to work with those teachers and those students on on those particular activities i i started to see sort of how the connections benefited students and um at the same time, you know, I, I obviously I went back to school and finished my master's and then my PhD. And as I was reading about uh, rural knowledge and and uh, reading about, you know, the rural school problem and and some of the other issues that rural divisions faced, um, I started to become more aware of funding discrepancies and whatnot at the same time. So kind of those things de developed for me into where I am now uh, was not a a short trajectory it was a rather long one actually i think there's definitely an interest in manitoba education um, in relation to indigenizing curriculum uh, including indigenous perspectives and in curriculum here in manitoba um, uh, however the political climate um, has been um, a, somewhat controversial i probably since the 1960s to be honest in manitoba mm. where you know, small rural schools have been closed and communities have died um, due to closures of schools in favor of larger, more, you know, efficient uh, school divisions. Um, we just went through a, a process here in Manitoba consultation process and there was, um, you know, some things on the table uh, with regards to centralizing, um, taking away school boards in Manitoba and centralizing the uh, administrative pieces of, of schooling um, in Winnipeg or uh, within Manitoba education. And um, that was uh, uh, set aside for now, uh, but that kind of political climate certainly doesn't um, 
impress upon people that, you know, rural communities matter uh, when rural school boards would be taken away from local communities and everything would be centralized. Um, that being said, however, I think there is always um, a desire to include uh, engaging and experiential learning experiences for students. So in that way, I, I think there is a political will for uh, rural and Indigenous-based knowledge to be uh, a focus in instructional strategies in, for Manitoba teachers. Yeah, I'm most hopeful uh, when I see the work of teachers. Mm -hmm. um, they are the ones that really inspire me. I, I think that, um, you know, in the chapter, um, you were talking about practical knowledge or phrenesis. Uh, in, in, the, mm -hmm. in the chapter, I talked about the um, the, a particular article called Phrenesis Children's uh, Local Rural Knowledge of Science and Engineering. And a pro and there was a project of um, uh, 25th and 6th grade students in upstate New York. Um, and they they basically had taken, taken pictures, over 400 pictures of science and engineering in their out-of-school lives. And these included things like woodworking and chores and auto repair and construction. And the students were able to identify examples in their lives um, of... Um, of science and engineering. And um, the authors in that particular article, they po they pointed out that uh, phrenesis or practical wisdom, that it occurs through a, a dynamic experiential process that's both uh, context dependent and framed socioculturally and ecologically. So I think that um, those particular authors, uh, what they did find was that students are able to see in their local environment, in local communities, examples of things like science and engineering. Um, what they also said, though, however, was that uh, many of them were unable to make the connections between school-based knowledge and their local uh, personal experiential knowledge in things like woodworking. Um, they were not so able to make the connections between the school learning and their local learning uh, and experiential learning without the help of, of educators, for example, to make those connections and help them see them. And so I, I really feel like um, educators have the most difficult job. Um, they're the ones that are trying to bridge uh, the difference between what sometimes is can be disconnected school-based knowledge and the local and experiential knowledge of students. Karin Kafalis, um, in Hollowing Out the Middle, they talk about a particular group of people from rural communities who, he, they call them the returners. Mm. And I, I truly believe that that particular group of people are, are the people who um, I have the most hope about. Um, so those people, they they leave uh, to pursue something, whether that's an education outside of the community or to work for a while, and they return back to the community and call, and make it home. And and it may not be a community. It may not be the exact community that they uh, grew up in. It may be a community like it. But mm -hmm. those people who go out and experience the world get an education and they come back, those people, I think, have prof I have profound hope for their ability to kind of infuse um, the community with knowledge uh, and capital that wasn't there before. Um, and I think that those those particular people, uh, Ursula, Ursula Kelly says one thing, um, she says an acceptance of loss 
as change, redirection, or depletion, for examples, would create a space in which one might plan and preserve, turning love of place into an ethic of responsibility and sustainability. That that really always resonated with me, um, the idea that if you love a place um, and if you are from a place or a place like it, you will be able to contribute and advocate for another place for its sustainability. Mm, wow. You also uh, quote a study um, where you say that uh, much of what is necessary to overcome the challenges we face may be found in the material and placed practices that persist in rural communities, representing not deficits, but strengths, know-how, and resilience. Yeah, I think... Um... I think that um, obviously um, if you're going to work on things like the sustainability of communities, um, whether that's economically or ecologically, um, you need to have people who know and love the space and people who have knowledge to affect change. Mm. So yeah, that is, that is definitely my, um, kind of what underlies the chapter, I would say. In uh, rethinking the role of, of pedagogy, you write, what if rural education was not just urban education adapted to fit or be stuffed into a rural box? Well, uh, one of the things that I think um, some people have written about how rural places are, are impacted um, in greater ways than urban places by climate change. And some of the reasons for that have to do with the um, economic ties to things like food production um, within rural places. So um, the climate change is obviously associated with uh, negative health outcomes um, for uh, people in all places, but in particular in rural places where agriculture, for example, or um, uh, tourism are bases uh, for ec the economic development of the community, those those communities are impacted more greatly by things such as flooding and water quality and, you know, things like algae blooms on uh, uh, freshwater lakes. So, um, because rural communities are impacted in greater ways, um, I think that place-based pedagogies hold tremendous promise. Um, for me, those those kinds of pedagogies are important um, because building relationships with local place and the natural world through experiences are the way out of these situations. I think that if if we're able to think critically about our relationship with place and with mm. each other, and, and by each other, I mean not just human beings, but all beings, um, then we become advocates for our, the sustainability of our spaces. And social action um, can be fostered uh, ecological and political literacy, for example, when people have a connection to place, when they love the local place, and when they're willing to advocate for that. I think that um, there was, I'll, I'll just give you an example, because I know sometimes place-based pedagogies is thrown around um, as, a, as a general thing, and, and just to make it a bit more real. Uh, in the chapter, I talk about um, 
the work of Kudo and uh, in an article called uh, Framing in Placemaking when Envisioning a Sustainable Rural Community in the Time of Aging and Shrinking Societies in Japan is the title of the article. And uh, he describes um, a two-day uh, monogatari, um, meaning storytelling workshop, and nine students at a, at a high school, they, they interviewed residents um, looking at pictures from the past, like 50 or 100 years earlier. And then they visited those same locations in the present, taking new pictures. And they talked with the two residents about the past. They compared the pictures. They talked about the differences between the two. Um, and then they envisioned what they wanted the future of that place in the pictures to be. So they went through this idea of, of what uh, Kudo calls place making. These kinds of activities, I think, um, learning about the past, looking at the present, identifying changes, and then imagining a future for, for place um, are some of the very important skills. We talk about, you know, global citizenship and, um, and skills that students need nowadays. I think um, if, if we're going to get through the time um, that we're currently in where we're destroying the earth on a daily basis, um, I think we need to engage our youth in envisioning what the future might be for, for um, themselves and for their places. That was my edited conversation with Candy Jones. Next time in part five of our series, we hear from Michelle Lamb who considers the plight of climate refugees in Canada and abroad, and who also asserts how education must take into consideration the complex web of relationships that connect both the human and more than human worlds. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.